All right, our current series, as we continue to work through the London Baptist Confession, the standard of what we believe and teach here, uh, to know what we believe and why we believe it, we're currently focusing on the covenant. And this is a big section, captures, uh, encompasses chapters 7 through 20 in our confession. And if we just break that down by chapter, we would see the covenant defined, the covenant servant, our Lord Jesus Christ, the covenant setting, the covenant blessings, the covenant graces, the covenant reception, or how the covenant is received. That is our present focus in this part of the confession. Um, We began a few weeks ago with chapter 7, paragraph 1 and 2 of God's covenant. And I began with an introduction that covenant is the big picture structure of Scripture. It is the means, the structure, the method, uh, the manner which God has chosen to reveal Himself to us and define our relationship with Him. We know our obligations toward God based upon the covenant. We know His promises and what He will do and His obligations towards us based upon covenant. We don't have to guess. Uh, We don't have to, uh, or we should not be confused by looking Old Testament, New Testament and and saying, oh, am I I also commanded not to eat shellfish, for example? No, we look at the covenant and we understand our relationship with God. It's a DTR. Um, Then we moved on to talk about the necessity of the covenant, that God had to condescend or descend Um, because of the creature-creator distinction. And then we looked at even more so, not just because of creation, but because of sin. Because man brought himself under the curse, a covenant of grace was necessary, which God freely offers us salvation in the Gospel. So that's what we covered two weeks ago. Um, Today, (coughs) excuse me, we're going to be in paragraph 3. And we're going to look at the revelation, the accomplishment, and the foundation of this covenant of grace. So we saw how God condescends to give salvation in covenant. Well, we're going to define this covenant of grace. And here is where maybe I'll get your attention. This chapter is why the Baptists rejected infant baptism. This chapter right here. This chapter represents the difference between PCA, OPC, Westminster Confession of Faith, and the Reformed Baptist. This chapter is central to that. This chapter shows us, at least in Baptist theology, that covenant theology does not equal infant baptism. Um, maybe I should say this paragraph, chapter 3 of our confession. Because that's really the heart of the matter here. We're talking about covenant, and if you want to understand the baptism debate, if you want to understand Why Presbyterians, specifically, baptize infants, and why Baptists do not, 
um, you're, you're probably better off, you are better off starting here rather than the chapter on baptism. Because this lays the foundation. And so if you want to know what we believe, why we believe it about baptism, that's what we're going to talk about today. That's why I said I wish there were more Presbyterians here this morning. Um, the key here, though, um, is how. At least as I framed it for us today. How do we understand and define the covenant of grace? How does the covenant of grace enter human history? How do the historical covenants in Scripture, the covenant of Abraham, the covenant with Moses specifically, relate to this covenant of grace? Because how you answer these three questions right here will determine where you end up on baptism. Ultimately. Now, let me just stop and say what I mean by this specifically is where you'll end up regarding Presbyterian infant baptism. Right? Because the the Catholics baptize infants and the Methodists And the Episcopals and the Anglicans um, and the Lutherans, they all baptize for different reasons than Presbyterians do. Totally different reasons. But the Presbyterians, the Reformed, baptize for a particular reason. This is what I'm saying. How you answer these three questions will determine where you end up on baptism. Baptism of believers or baptism of believers and their children. So that's what we're going to tackle today. How do we understand the covenant of grace? How does it enter history? How do the historical covenants relate to it? Because that lays the foundation for where we end up on baptism. All right. Let me give you a brief overview of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is the standard, as I said, PCA, OPC, traditional Presbyterianism, um, uh, the Reformed in general, What do they teach on the covenant of grace? Remember, that's what we're talking about. Chapter 7, paragraph 1 and 2, introduce the covenant of grace. Okay, well, chapter 7 of Westminster does as well. What do they say about the covenant of grace? They say in chapter 7, the covenant of grace was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. (coughs) Excuse me. I'm going to explain all this, so hang with me here. What this is, the Presbyterian view presents one covenant of grace with multiple administrations. That's their theology of the covenant of grace. There's one covenant of grace, but it's differently administered. It's kind of like um, the administration of, um, let's say, covenant college. There's a current administration. You've got a president, you've got a, you know, a board of directors, trustees, you have the faculty, they administer the education, the purposes of the school. Well, say, you know, they were all, I don't know, laid off or whatever, and an entirely new administration came in. They might do things a lot differently. But they're still serving the same purpose. The Presbyterians believe that the covenant of grace is, multi- is administered differently down through history. But it's the same covenant. So 
the covenant made with Abraham is the covenant of grace. The covenant made with Moses is the covenant of grace. God is administering salvation through those covenants. And the new covenant is the covenant of grace. The covenant that we are under. So, the same covenant of grace was administered in different ways throughout redemptive history. That's the Presbyterian view. So, what are the implications of this view? If you have one covenant of grace, multiply, uh, multiple administrations, what, are, what, what does this mean? Like, can you, can you give me some brass tacks? Well, one thing that it means, and, and this is good, we, we end up in the same place, but we get there differently, is that salvation is always the same from beginning to end. By faith alone, by grace alone, in the Redeemer alone. Right? So salvation in every covenant or every stage of history is the same, by faith. And we end up, we get there too, but we get there uh, uh, a different way. Nevertheless, that's one implication of this one covenant with multiple administrations. But another implication is that the terms of covenant membership remain the same through every covenant administration. You have the same covenant. It would be, again, to use the analogy of Covenant College. Like, the, the, the terms of receiving a degree, or the terms of admission, are the same, even though you might have a totally different administration. Maybe use the analogy of a presidential administration. Right? The, 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 the terms of citizenship are the same, whether, uh, whether it's Bush or Obama or Trump or Biden. Different administrations, but the laws still stay the same. So the terms of covenant membership remain the same through each covenant administration. So if infants, and specifically the males in the Old Testament, um, it's often skipped over, but if infants were given the covenant sign, circumcision, which was the sign of inclusion into the Old Covenant, Since we're in the very same covenant, infants are to be included in our administration as well through our initiation rite, baptism. Track him with me, right? One covenant, multiple administrations, the administrations change, but membership remains the same. That's why they say we baptize infants. No additional command or example is needed. You don't need a command in the New Testament to baptize infants. You don't need an example of the New, in the New Testament of baptizing infants, which there is neither command nor example. You don't need that. Because the covenant is the same, initiation stays the same all throughout. That's a Presbyterian view. Um... I'll pause real quick, and are there any questions or clarification if you don't understand this? Jill? Since 
Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, she asked whether if, you know, if it's males only in the Old Testament, why is it not males only in the New Testament? Um, there are various reasons or answers to this. Um, in the Old Covenant, there is a particular focus on um, the firstborn, of uh, the male um, headship kind of thing that in the New Testament you have baptism mentioned in the context of Jew, Gentile, male, female. And so there's a greater inclusion. Um, we'll get to that question more in a moment uh, as, we, as we think about why males specifically, because our answer to that is different, but that's essentially what they would say. All right, everybody's tracking with me. Okay, Jonathan? No question. No comment. Okay. All right. So, I want to press back and say, what if the historical covenants are not to be seen as equal with the covenant of grace? What if they're not to be equated with the covenant of grace? What if the diversity of each historical covenant, which everybody acknowledges some diversity, Everybody acknowledges that some things in the Old Covenant continue and some things don't. We don't offer animal sacrifices anymore. We don't have priesthood. We don't have a temple. We don't have cleanliness laws. We don't have uh, food laws. All those things. What if this diversity, which everyone acknowledges to some extent, leads us to conclude that the covenants can't be equated as one-to-one. And this is where the Baptists differed. We define the covenant of grace slightly different than the Presbyterians. And that's why we don't baptize infants. That's where it all comes down to. So, let me get to paragraph 3. What did the Baptists say about the covenant of grace? This covenant of grace is revealed in the gospel, first of all to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterwards by farther steps, until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. Um, I hate that I only have one 45-minute session to break this down. Um, unless you guys ask a lot of questions, then we can come back next week. I won't get through my material. Um, there's a lot here, uh, but I'm going to do my best to just kind of condense it all and give you the, the bare bones of it. Um, the revelation of this covenant of grace is in the gospel. The covenant of grace wherein God freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ is revealed in the gospel. The gospel is the revelation of the covenant of grace. The life, death, resurrection, ascension, intercession of Jesus Christ is, essentially, the covenant of grace. Let me parse this out so you get what I'm saying here. 
How is this covenant of grace revealed? Well, not all at once. First of all, to Adam, Genesis 3.15, the promise of salvation. And then by farther steps, until the full discovery was completed in the New Testament. So, it's revealed in historical stages, until it's full manifestation in the New Testament. And and think about here how the New Testament is full of language about mystery revealed, and promises kept hidden. And now made known. Um, just a few passages here. We, Ephesians 3 4. The mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery of Christ wasn't made known before. We're going to argue, if it wasn't made known before, how can those old covenants be the covenant of grace? Hebrews 1.1, again, long ago, many times, many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Again, basically saying the same thing. In Christ, the full manifestation of the purposes of God are revealed. Uh, Titus 1.2, The hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised even before the ages began, but now at the proper time has manifested in His Word, in the apostles' preaching. Hidden, revealed, mystery made known. This language is all throughout the Old Testament. That's what the Baptists are harping on here. The covenant of grace was hidden under types and shadows until it was revealed fully and openly in the gospel of Christ. Um, So let's think about again this... uh Uh-oh. Let's think about again this... There we go. Farther steps revealed in stages. We have this first promise to Adam, if you remember Genesis 3.15. The promise that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. You know that it is by faith in that promise that Adam and Eve were saved. And I do believe that they were redeemed based upon their prior, I mean their subsequent words and actions. They didn't know about Jesus Christ. Specifically, they didn't know about the cross and atonement. All they were told was, there will come a seed of the woman who will crush this enemy who has, who has tempted and led to the fall. And through faith in that, they are included in the people of God. But then there's more information given. Abraham is told a little bit more. Moses is told a little bit more. David is told a little bit more. The prophets are told a little bit more. More and more and more and more. Types, shadows, earthly things that depict heavenly realities. Until finally in Christ, it's the the bursting of the noonday sun. Light is shined on all of the Old Testament prophets and types and covenants And they all are seen in the light of Christ. And by the light of Christ, 
the covenant of grace is revealed. <clears throat> Think about what steps, farther steps, the imagery there. We have forward movement from the garden to Canaan with Abraham to Jerusalem, the promised land, to Christ. But we also have upward movement. We have from earthly types to heavenly realities using the language of Hebrews. So this forward, upward movement consummating all where Christ is the center of all of Scripture. Christ is the center of all revelation. Christ is the center of everything the Old Testament pointed to. That's what the Baptists are saying. Now, Presbyterians don't necessarily disagree with this, but the implications of this obviously cause some friction. Um, What this means... Here we have a picture of um, a depiction of Abraham and a depiction of Moses. What this means is, whether we're talking about Abraham or Moses, the covenant of grace, the gospel, was only revealed and manifested and consummated in the new covenant. You see, the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenants did not provide for or accomplish Eternal forgiveness of sins. Think about the promise of Abraham. What is he told in the Abrahamic covenant? What does God bind himself to give Abraham? I will be a God to you. I will give you a land. I'm going to define that as specific boundaries. And I'm going to make a nation out of you. I'm going to bless your offspring. There's no forgiveness of sins in that. There's no eternal life in that. Now, the, it typifies, the land typifies the new heavens and the new earth. The offspring, as we'll see in a moment, typifies Christ. It's through believing God's promises that he is, uh, Abraham is accounted as righteous, but there's nothing in the Abrahamic covenant itself that provides the Holy Spirit, uh, the forgiveness of sins, Eternal life, same with Moses. As we'll see in a moment, the blood of bulls and goats does not take away sins, the author of Hebrews tells us. Animal sacrifices didn't save anybody. They depicted a sacrifice to come. In fact, the Mosaic Covenant is really a covenant of works. Because if it wasn't a covenant of works... God wouldn't say, you broke the covenant. If those sacrifices were legitimate and did take away sins, there would not be a need for Christ to come. Exactly. That's what Hebrew says, doesn't it? Exactly. That's right. Jason. I'm still having trouble seeing the distinction between what Spencer says and what I'm Baptist. I'm going to get there. Got lots more to say. So, comparing the Westminster in 1689. (laughs) I love it. You're tracking with me. You're tracking with me. The Westminster, the Abrahamic covenant is the covenant of grace. The Mosaic covenant is the covenant of grace. Differently administered. The 1689, the Abrahamic. Land and offspring was typology, as I just mentioned. 
promises land and it promises a people, which is why infant males were included in that covenant. God was creating a nation for the Messiah to come. And as I'll say in a moment, think about it in a moment, infant males were circumcised because an infant male was going to be the Redeemer. It pointed to the one who himself would be cut off. Which is why infant inclusion is no more because Christ has come. The child has been born. Now the New Testament is full of language, children of God by faith. Not children of God by birth. The Mosaic also, so in uh, Westminster, it equals the covenant of grace. The Mosaic, as we understand it, only dealt with things earthly and typology. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. Hebrews talks very specifically about uh, earthly reality. So the Mosaic covenant dealt with life in the land. And that's it. If you obey, I will defeat all of your enemies, God says. I will bless you, your crops, your children. There will be an abundance of earthly blessing. And yes, there's this problem of sin. If I'm going to dwell with you, you need this this cleansing and atonement that will purify you and keep you in the land. But those things don't take away sin. They point to heavenly realities. The cleansing of water we'll see in the next hour. The washings signify the washing of the Holy Spirit that would come in Jesus Christ. The cleansing of the animal sacrifice pointed to the sacrifice of Christ. The temple pointed to the indwelling of God um, uh, with his people, which we enjoy in the Holy Spirit. The land depicts the, the eternal new heavens and the new earth. The priesthood depicts Christ himself as prophet, priest, and king. So, earthly things pointing to heavenly realities. Let me keep going here. Westminster Confession, Israel equals the church under H. So if you think about the Old Testament, if Israel is the church, then you have this mixture of believers and unbelievers because you're born into it. You're born into the church. Being a Jew means you are part of the church. Being related to Abraham means you are part of the church. Which is what they pull over into the new covenant. You're born into the church. Because your parents are believers. <clears throat> the, new, the new covenant equals a covenant of grace as well. Maybe the church mature they would say. But in the 1689, Israel is a type of the church. A type doesn't equal the reality. A shadow doesn't equal the reality. It depicts it imperfectly. It points to it. There's an analogical relationship there, but it's not to be equated as one-to-one. So we look at Old Testament Israel as only the elect remnant within them were saved. That's the only church. 
The nation itself was a type that depicted the church to come. So in the New Covenant, the covenant of grace, uh, excuse me, the New Covenant is the covenant of grace, which all the earthly covenants pointed to and anticipated, and you no longer have this big external body with only an elect remnant within them. Now you do have, and you, you, you might get, forgive me if you get confused here, I'm, I'm adding a lot of stuff on top of this. You do have an, an uh, what's the best way to say it, uh, a, a, a visible and invisible distinction in both Israel and the church. So in Israel you had true believers and unbelievers making up one body. And in the church, that's true to some extent as well. There are false sons in her pale, as we've seen. There are false converts who take the name of Christ and end up turning away. But the difference is um, de facto or de jure. De jure by rule of law. De facto, kind of the fallout of such. Uh, Sam Renhan um, has depicted it as, as a feature or a flaw as well. What do, I, what do I mean by that? In the Old Testament, there was an intentional mixture of, in, of believers and unbelievers. But in the New Testament, that's not the intentional mixture. And when that happens, that's a flaw. Or that's a bug in the system. That's de facto rather than de jure by rule. That's a concept that's hard to explain. Um, if, you, if you have a question, let me know. Uh, m- m- the point just being, unbelievers were intentionally included in Old Testament Israel. In the New Testament, there are no unbelievers intentionally included. That, that, it, is, that it is an exception and a tragedy when an unbeliever is included. That's the opposite of, of Old Testament Israel. They were supposed to be included. Regardless. Type, anti-type. Israel, the church. That's where we differ. So, salvation in the Old Testament, in the Westminster, was through faith alone, but it was provided by and administered by the earthly covenants. The 689, salvation in the Old Testament, was also by faith alone, but it was provided by the, the new covenant to come. Faith in the new covenant to come, just like Abraham was to have faith in the Messiah. Uh, I mean, uh, Adam was to have faith in the seed of the woman to come. And that salvation is to be apprehended by looking above the earthly types to heavenly realities. So, an Old Testament Israelite who looked to the animal sacrifices and the temple to save him And that alone was not a believer. But an Old Testament Israelite like David, who is able to say in Psalm 51, you know what? Sacrifice is an offering you don't really desire. I see there's something more to this. Who looked above those things to see heavenly realities, that's the remnant who was saved. 
And that's why all throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, the language again and again, sadly, is only a small remnant of Israel is saved. Only a small remnant. Personally, that's why I I say one of the blessings of the New Covenant is that there's not inclusion of infants. It's a blessing. It, it, it purifies the church and it, and it keeps the gospel, the need for new birth, first and foremost. You can't just be born into this. This requires faith. If you trust in your birthright or in your parents' faith or just because you're sitting in a pew, you're going to end up like an Old Testament Israelite. Thinking everything is fine because you're part of the system and you have no faith or love for God. That distinction Jesus makes in John 8 when he talks about the Israelites being sons of their father, the devil, even though they have the lineage mm, mm, of the Jews, mm. spiritually they were bankrupt. Yeah, exactly. And you know what he else says in that? He says, you know, you're not children of Abraham. Because you don't walk in the faith of Abraham, even though you're related to him. And he says, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. Abraham wasn't looking to the Abrahamic covenant. He looked forward and saw Christ. That's why he was a believer. The Jews were looking to the Abrahamic covenant alone. And that's why Jesus says, you're of Satan. And that's why John the Baptist says, you know what? Don't come to me wanting to be baptized saying, Abraham is my father. Instead, bear fruits worthy of repentance. He refused to baptize on the basis of their historical lineage. Their connection to Abraham. He baptized based upon faith. And you're probably going to talk about this, but the new covenant or the covenant of grace was inaugurated, it was actually established at Christ's coming. Yes, yes. I'm not going to talk about that. Thank you for pointing that out. That's a big difference. Yeah, it's formally established. Right. Um, The benefits of it um, are retroactive because from Abraham to Christ, you know, salvation came by looking to that covenant to come, that covenant mediator to come. So its benefits were retroactive, but you're right. It's only consummated, sealed, confirmed, inaugurated in history and revealed in the death and resurrection of Christ. Sam. Say that one more time. Yeah, why is it so important the New Testament the Gentiles were included? That's a great point because the Old Testament covenants were only made with Abraham and his children. Moses, the people of Israel. Now, a sojourner or a Gentile could be included. Um, but um, I, that's, that's another kind of like bug instead of a feature. Um, there is no 
impetus in the Old Testament for the Jews to evangelize or to take the gospel out. Um, God, as the psalmist says, revealed his laws to Israel in no other nation. It's because Old Testament Israel isn't for the purpose of administering the covenant of grace, per se. It's for laying the ground, historical groundwork for the Messiah to come to bring the covenant of grace. So that now that it's come, there's no more purposes for the Jew. There's no more significance to Israel. There's no more reason for Abraham's children, lineage, land, all of that, which differs us from dispensationalism as well. God's plan with Israel was always temporary, only leading the Messiah. He's done now with Israel. Even though in Romans 11, there does appear to be uh, that there will be a uh, revival of sort uh, uh, at the, in the end time of, of uh, Israelites or, 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 or of the Jewish people through faith in Christ. But as a nation, he's done with the nation. It was to protect the lineage from the tribe of yes. Judah yep. going all the way down. Yep. It was to protect the tribe of Judah, the lineage leading to the Messiah. Cody? Yes. Right. Yes. Paul calls the, the, the covenants in, in of, covenants. covenants of promise. Yeah. Plural covenants, one promise. They all pointed to a ultimate promise that is confirmed and ratified in Christ. Kason. So would it be possible to say that you could be born into the old covenant but not born into the new covenant? Yes. You could be born into the earthly administration of the Old Covenant, which provided nothing in regards to salvation. Um, it is impossible to be born into the New Covenant, but that's where we differ. To a Presbyterian, you can be born into the New Covenant. You just, in some sense, you're born into the external administration, not the internal reality. And only through faith they would say, you're born into the internal reality. That that's, gets more complicated but in, in some sense, you're born into the new covenant. Um, so, when we come to baptism, if the covenants are the same and flattened out, an argument could be made that the covenant initiation is the same. And that's what they do. All the covenants are the same. How you enter them is all the same. Since infants were added in the old covenant, they're added in the new covenant. And we don't need a command or an example to verify that. But if the covenants are distinct and progressive, and if they are earthly types of heavenly realities to come, then we do not have warrant to pull aspects of the old covenant into the new covenant without explicit divine instruction. And let me just say this concerns more than just baptism, anything from the Old Testament. 
The Mosaic Covenant is, mixes church and state. You know? It's one. That's why... And many Baptists fall into this trap too, so I've got to be careful. But Presbyterians, um, theonomy, a mixture of church and state, is part of their history. In fact, the original Westminster Confession, before it was amended when uh, the Presbyterians came to America, had an explicit connection between church and state. Well, because you can pull those things from the Old Covenant. Legalism, too. Pull legalism in from the Old Covenant. Obey. Health and wealth gospel is the Mosaic Covenant. I mean, don't shoot me when I say that. Some people get really mad when I say that, but it's true. Read the end of the book of Deuteronomy. You you obey and I will bless you like you've never seen. You're going to have the most amazing life you've ever had. You're going to live a long time. You're going to have dozens of children. You're going to be rich. Obey, and I will bless you. But you disobey, and it's the health and wealth gospel. Health and wealth gospel people, they pull those things from the old covenant into the new covenant. They don't look to the new covenant to define our relationship. They look to the old covenant. And that is part of Presbyterian history too, Cody. Yeah, just a quick note. That's a reversal of a very essential... <laughs> That's really, really good. Yes. We understand the Old Covenant by virtue of the New Covenant. We understand the Old Testament by virtue of the New Testament. Not the other way around. Which Presbyterians agree with, except when it comes to something like baptism. There they give Old Covenant, Old Testament priority. Because there's no mention of of infant inclusion in the New Testament. Jonathan? shadow of infant inclusion baptism is fulfilled by statements in the in the old testament old covenant basically yeah that's good i I gotta wrap up i'm gonna press through a couple more things yeah i'm gonna give you three slides of summary all right as the gospel was progressively made known throughout history the covenant of grace was progressively known throughout history more and more info was given The covenant of grace should not be flattened into two administrations, oversimplifying this progressive revelation and its complex relationship to the old covenant. If Westminster federalism can be summarized as one covenant under two administrations, the 1689 would be one covenant revealed progressively and concluded formally in the new covenant. 
Think about in closing this farther steps. The Messiah and the mediator of the covenant. And I want to think particularly about infant inclusion here. You have the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. Who, who is included in the seed of the woman in that promise? Is there anybody who's ever been born who's not a child of Eve? Included the whole world. The whole world. But then it narrows. Now, after Noah, it's only the seed of Noah's family. Then it's narrowed. Now, it's only the seed of Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. Then it's narrowed to the seed of David in the Davidic covenant, tribe of Judah. And finally, Jesus Christ, the man, the seed, was born. My point in this, this last paragraph here, this is what the promise to your children, circumcision, and the inclusion of children in the covenants, promised, revealed, and anticipated. And it ended with the person of Christ. See, Presbyterians go back to Genesis 17, 7. I will be a God to you and your children after you. That is the basis for their infant baptism. And what I'm saying is, there is a further steps progression, narrowing of a seed, 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 seed. And it all culminates in Christ. And that I will be a God to you and your children was a promise that the Messiah would be born from, from Abraham's loins. It is not a promise that ever meant physical children are included in salvific covenant by virtue of their birth. Never meant that. Christ is the end of that promise. Uh, Yeah. So, one covenant of grace revealed from the fall in a progressive way. The new covenant in Christ's blood is formally and properly the covenant of grace. All of the other covenants announced and promised and typified that covenant, but they lacked confirmation and establishment by the blood of that only sacrifice. And that's where I'll end today. Um, Yeah, it looks like we're going to have to take one more week and deal with a covenant of redemption. So, yeah. You push back another week, Cody. I'm so sorry. Oh, you're happy. Okay. More time to prep. I'm going to expect a lot out of you. Um, let me go ahead and... If there are any last questions, we'll close in prayer.